evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. And we are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, BeckermanPR.com. If you want to tell your story, tell it with Beckerman. And as always, another busy political week going on out there. And we are going to cross the pond because there's politics going on in Israel. And there's, uh, as always, there's always politics going on in Israel. That was brought home a little bit here this past week with uh, APAC conference, as well as a big rally at Saras Tefillah in lower Manhattan, concurrent or not concurrent, but uh, kind of done a week later after one in Israel, Yerushalayim and Eretz Yisrael, talking about the draft bill. So here... And we, oh, I'm sorry. And the big political story is an election in Beit Shemesh. Beit Shemesh, not necessarily known as the, well, maybe known as the bellwether of Israel. I don't know. We're going to find out. But politically, a big, hotly contested redo of an election in Beit Shemesh that happened this past Tuesday. And that had the incumbent, Moshe Abbott Bull of the Shas Party, defeat Eli Cohen of I believe by UD and Likud, and he was backed by a number of others, and it was very much considered a Haredi versus everyone else election. So here to explain us all, it all to us, joining us once again is Benjamin Rose, the news editor of Bishbacha Magazine. Benjamin, welcome back to Spin Class. Thank you, Michael. Nice to be with you again. So you just came back. Uh, to, you went back to Israel from uh, from the U.S. and. You uh, spent a little time here, I guess, uh, learning some stuff about the local political scene. You've been writing about it so far, but also right now uh, you're back in the soup of the thick of things in Israel. So, uh, number one, tell us what's going on with the draft bill in Israel right now. Tell us what the reaction's been within the Haredi community and how that's how you think that's going to play out and what that impact that might have politically uh, uh, a little wider in Israel. Well, Michael, the draft bill is now a fait accompli. It was passed by the Knesset on Wednesday this week. Uh, so it now gets uh, written in the law books, and uh, once it's written up in the law books, it becomes official. Uh, the reaction in the Haredi community, I think, is that we've seen in the streets, and also uh, I think the media has done a fairly good job of covering it as well. Uh, the Haredi community, for the most part, uh, ever since the new government was formed, uh, has felt that it's been cut out from the political process, which uh, is understandable considering the Haredim are not in the coalition. And in the coalition government, when you're not in the coalition, you're really out. But I think the more difficult uh, situation for the Haredim has been a, a sense of uh, disenfranchisement and, uh, and a sense that uh, uh, people are blaming us for ills, many of which uh, happen to be non-existent in uh, the opinion of the Haredim, and that this draft bill and some of the other measures that have been passed, uh, economically speaking, against Yeshivos is just uh, a political way of uh, the secular community judging the Haredi community and saying, we don't like the way you run things, and we're going to use the power that we have to punish you. So have we seen a microcosm of that with regard to the Beit Shemesh election, that Haredim versus the world? Am I getting that right in my assessment? Uh, I don't know about uh, the Haredim versus the world, but certainly uh, the Haredim versus uh, the secular political parties. Uh, Beit Shemesh, of course, is different from the country, because if you take a look at the country overall, uh, Israel has maybe uh, 10 to 15 percent Haredim. So on the national level, the ability of the Haredim to influence the national debate is somewhat limited by those numbers. In Beit Shemesh, it's different. So whereas in Beit Shemesh right now, at least among the voting rolls, uh, there's still a slight edge to the secular-slash-national-religious. Uh, however, demographically, when you uh, take account all the young kids and when you take account uh, all the people who are Haredi and who don't vote for ideological reasons, uh, the Haredim probably represent a good two-thirds of uh, the population of Beit Shemesh. So in Beit Shemesh, uh, the Haredim had the, had the clout in terms of the numbers, and I think that's uh, that showed in the election. Uh, Butbul won the first time, and in the second time, uh, uh, the uh, margin of difference was only about 200 votes less than what he got the first time. So, you know, the Haredim are certainly very happy about uh, Butbul's victory. Uh, also, I think it's fair to say that uh, Mayor Butbul has done a, a quite a quite a good job as mayor of Beit Shemesh. There's been a lot of growth in Beit Shemesh. 
uh, over the last five years economically, a lot of housing growth, a lot of population growth. It's a very in-demand area, as I think most people who uh, are uh, into the Israeli real estate scene understand. And uh, while a lot of that preceded uh, Mayor Butbul's term, uh, he certainly, uh, I think, did a credible job at the very least uh, during his term and uh, was, was deserving of a second term. Now, in the U.S., we have special elections that come about when there's vacancies and the like, and Israel doesn't really have that type of thing. These are municipal elections that happen in Beit Shemesh, of course. It's not necessarily a, a regular election, but it was called for a redo together. I think there was one other city that also had a redo of their election uh, together with Beit Shemesh. So that means the whole country is focused on a, on that election, and everybody, instead of Looking in multiple jurisdictions and multiple places, everybody's focused on that. We're actually going to talk about a special election later in the show that just happened this week in Florida in the Tampa Bay area. But how much of that dynamic, the fact that the whole country was looking at this, the whole country was focused on this, you had uh, many of the uh, Haredi Gedolim come to Beit Shemesh, including some that came from America in order to influence the vote. Talk about that for a second. You know, I think that's uh, part and parcel of uh, Israeli uh, political life. Uh, you know, in America, it's easy to uh, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to separate uh, religion from politics. In fact, it's uh, for the most part mandated by the Constitution. However, in Israel, if there were a Constitution here, it would probably be mandated that religion has to be a part of politics. So, you know, there's no question. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, there was a, a tremendous amount of publicity focused on. Uh, on the campaign, and, and that's why I think both sides fought so hard. Uh, you had Arya Derry setting up camp in uh, Beit Shemesh for a month. Uh, he wasn't the only one. There were uh, members of Degala Torah and uh, the Yigudis Israel Party who did the same thing, uh, uh, the uh, secular uh, forces and the Likud and other parties who were aligned with Eli Cohen also worked equally hard to try and get out the vote. There was a lot of coverage in the media. Uh, it was a very interesting campaign, and uh, you know, uh, but the final result once again was the same. Uh, everyone threw all of their best efforts into it, and uh, uh, for the best uh, campaign that money could buy, uh, the result just didn't change. It was the same result as the first election. So it makes a lot of people wonder that you know, why do we have to go through the whole thing all again? Yeah, and it was very divisive as well. So of course that there's a. Uh... And people probably wonder and say, why do we need more of this divisiveness? But let me just ask with regard, you know, from an American focus, right? There are a lot of Anglos living in Beit Shemesh, uh, both Anglo Haredim, Anglo Datilumi. And there was this perception, at least from what I read, that many of the Anglos were not going to, were going to be backing Eli Cohen, who was the secular candidate, as opposed to the Haredi candidate. Now, maybe that was because of some past tensions. Or not, but then there was this, uh, I guess, shift that's been reported amongst the Anglo's that were represented by what's known as the Tove Party, that then went, uh, that seemed to have shifted towards uh, Abu Bull in the ends, and you know perhaps maybe that swung the election somewhat. You know, Michael, there were no reliable polls in this sort of election, so there, there's really no way to uh, gauge that 100 percent, but. Uh, I would agree with you. The perception is right. I think that uh, I think some people were shaken up uh, after the first election by the charges that were uh, uh, leveled, not against the Butbul, but uh, uh, by the charges that were leveled against the Haredi community as far as vote fraud. And uh, there were people who were concerned that uh, you know, all the pressure would be on uh, on a Butbul to uh, to prove his worth the second time around, and that he would be at a disadvantage because of the court ruling. Even though he himself was not involved in the in the vote fraud, but uh, there was an appearance of that uh, the vote was tainted, and uh, that was uh, going to hurt the uh, Haredi community and the Haredi turnout. And uh, I would say overall, there will always be anywhere between three to seven percent of the Haredi vote, American or otherwise, that go to non-Haredi parties. Uh, that's pretty much been documented uh, if you take a look at election results uh, all over the country. So whenever that happens, there's always a concern that it could snowball and that uh, Americans especially who were known for being independent politically and, uh, again, separating religion and uh, politics might say, well, you know something, I might be Haredi, but you know, that doesn't really require me to vote for the Haredi candidate because I want to separate my religion and my politics and judge both differently. That was the fear. 
but it didn't happen that way. Uh, I think partially because of the Rabbanim that came out, but uh, also at the end of the day, I think that uh, the ultra-Orthodox, uh, whether they were American or otherwise, just banded together, and uh, you know, they took a look at uh, the two candidates for mayor, uh, both qualified men, uh, but they said about both the incumbent, he's done well for us, uh, he's probably an address that we could turn to if we need something uh, more than his uh, challenger. And at the end of the day, I think that uh, they stuck with the uh, party loyalty and they voted for a boot bull, and uh, that's uh, why a boot bull won. So, Binyamin, we're talking to Binyamin Rose here from Mishpacha Magazine, the news editor, and Mishpacha, a great source of uh, analysis of the Orthodox world as well as a great analysis of Israel. And Binyamin does a fantastic job. We're here on Spin Class, sponsored by Deckerman. And Binyamin, what about the role? A lot of Americans uh, are kind of puzzled out there with uh, a, a guy, and we've talked about him before. We've actually had him on the show, uh, Haver Knesset from Beit Shemesh, Dove Lippmann. And uh, why why are we puzzled? We don't really understand where he is, where he, you know, he he's an Yisrael guy, so ostensibly Haredi, but with allied himself with Lapid and the Yesha Tid party, and uh, clearly a protagonist behind the draft bill and the like. Uh, certainly, I, I've, I've, from what I've told, persona non grata in a lot of the Haredi community. But he lives in Beit Shemesh and was a big supporter of Eli Cohen. And presumably, if he's a Haver Knesset, he has some base of support. Uh, was he a factor in this election at all? Uh, I don't think that uh, ultimately he was a factor because the candidate that he backed uh, lost. So uh, I think in that sense, uh, this was a defeat for uh, uh, the uh, Dov Lipman faction, either in the Knesset or in uh, Beit Shemesh. As far as, uh, as far as Dov's overall standing is concerned, uh, you know, it's, it's not really my place to, uh, to say. Uh, I've never actually uh, had the opportunity, other than some email correspondence, to uh, have any conversation with Dov, so uh, I wouldn't want to uh, be the one to judge. I think there's a lot of uh, information out there already. Uh, you know, personally, I think Doe falls into uh, a category of a lot of people who are American Haredim and uh, who see some of the uh, issues and some of the uh, troubles affecting Haredi society and feels that he would like to see some reform. Uh, but in my opinion, I think uh, the mistake that uh, Doe Lipman made was that he hitched his horse to, uh, to the wrong wagon. Uh, I personally don't feel that uh, Yeshatid is going to be a long-lived party in the Knesset, all of the polls show that uh, Yar Lapid, uh, the number one on Yeshatid, is very unpopular, and that if new elections were held anytime soon, that Yeshatid's uh, representation in the Knesset uh, uh, will drop significantly. We've actually seen that before with his father, right? His father was a kind of a flash in the pan situation with the Shinui party, uh, rose to prominence with a very significant uh, block in, of Knesset votes, and uh, didn't last, didn't have any staying power. They were totally wiped out in the next election, in fact. And uh, I don't know if the same thing would happen to Yeshatid. It probably depends on how long it will be take to get to the next election. I think if, uh, if an election were held in the next three, four months, so Yeshatid is still probably a force. I think if uh, the election, the next election in Israel goes off as scheduled in November of 2017, uh, if uh, the trend continues for Yeshatid the way it is, it could be that uh, people will start to split off and join different parties, and Yeshatid uh, won't be around. But uh, one, uh, one thing about Israeli politics is that uh, uh, it's very, very hard to predict. And uh, anyone who's a veteran Israeli who's been around here for all their life will tell you that uh, nobody knows what's going to happen in the next six months. So uh, all you can do is stay tuned. But, Benjamin, I'm always of the opinion that if you know a little bit more than the next guy, you're certainly free to go ahead and make predictions all the time. That's what I do. I just you know, try and, if I know like one other fact, I just go ahead and make those bold predictions. So you, you don't want to speculate at all. I guess that's the inner, you know, fair journalist in you. Uh, it's more than the inner fair journalist. It also uh, comes from the time that I spent in the financial markets, and uh, I learned that it's not, uh, not wise uh, well to get put. overly opinionated. Uh, understood. So let's talk about your trip to America. You came, uh, you covered the APAC conference, and you've been there before. What what did you see this year versus last year? What did you what did you notice different politically or internally with regard to APAC? 
That's a good question. I think that uh, just from a technical point of view, I think that uh, uh, the, this year's session had a lot more free time for the delegates than last year. I remember last year uh, uh, they booked everyone's time uh, from morning, noon, and night, and uh, I think they overdid it a little bit on the session. So I think they realized that and uh, decided to have a little bit more free time built into uh, the schedule this year, especially in the evenings, which is good because I think that allows people to do what they really come there for, and that's to spend time networking. So I think that was one uh, difference uh, that I saw this year uh, uh, compared to last year. Uh, another thing which stood out, and I wrote about it in this week's edition, is that uh, APAC, I think, tried to demonstrate a little bit more uh, neutral or a peaceful face. Uh, by having a couple of sessions, such as the one I covered that uh, Arab journalist Ali Waked was in, and a couple of other sessions where they tried to show uh, certain grassroots movement uh, towards peace in uh, Israel. So uh, that was certainly a difference. Uh, I think uh, uh, people who've been going to APAC for a long time uh, noticed that as well. It was unusual. Uh, but I think also APAC... Uh, was a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say, uh, if last year they were on a high uh, with the appearance of Joe Biden, the vice president at the convention, so this year, uh, uh, I mean, I wouldn't call uh, John Kerry or Jack Lew uh, minor officials by any means, but, uh, you know, certainly it wasn't the same presence. Uh, they're not the same speaker as uh, Joe Biden is, so I think the administration downgraded uh, its presence at this year's convention, and APAC was under a little bit of a cloud because they had uh, just been forced to back down uh, versus the president uh, with the Iran sanctions. So I think that uh, hung a pall, if you will, over uh, the proceedings, and uh, I think APAC had to uh, prove that they could come out fighting and that they still have a lot of fight left in them. I think you've said that there was a question whether APAC is diminished as an organization, uh, not just with regard to Iran, but possibly just in general. Um, and you know, it's been written about quite a bit over here, and we had a guest on last week who kind of talked about how APAC uh, worships the altar of bipartisanship, so they're really never willing to take on some of these fights because they can't appear as if they're favoring uh, Republicans over Democrats or Democrats versus Republicans, and in the end, it's kind of watered down a little bit. But yet, it's interesting, there's a poll that just came out today that was published by M.J. Rosenberg, who... Uh... I think was an APAC insider and has been a long-standing APAC critic at this point. And uh, the poll showed that most people seem to think that APAC favors the Republican side, and they're not bipartisan. So they might want to come across as bipartisan, and officially they might be. But uh, I think most people see them, and, and I think it's, it's probably a fair assessment. Most people see them as uh, a more conservative and uh, favoring the Republican side of the issue, uh, as opposed to uh, truly being bipartisan. And uh, obviously, uh, uh, that's probably one reason why the president decided to uh, take them on and push back recently. So who were the highlight speakers out there? Uh, I think you wrote that Bob Menendez was the one who brought down the House. Uh, so he was uh, better than Kerry or better than Jack Lew, uh, you know, Jack Lew being the Lonsman? Look, uh, Jack Lew is a very, very fine man. Uh, those who know him uh, uh, can't stop saying enough good things about him. He uh, is one of the most professional, uh, top-notch uh, uh, economic people in Washington, and uh, he's proven his mettle over more than 20 years in a variety of administrations. He, uh, uh, he walks into whatever office he holds, whether it's Office of Management or Budget or Treasury, and uh, he holds down the fort, and uh, he does an outstanding job uh, not only for the country, but also uh, for the people who employ him. So, uh, you know, Jack Lew obviously is, uh, is popular. I, I think that he was in a difficult position because he's trying to defend the administration's position on sanctions, and he was trying to tell the crowd that, listen, as a Treasury Secretary, so I'm responsible for enforcing the sanctions, and I, I know what goes on financially and how the flow of money goes, and I'm telling you the sanctions are still on. And the perception out there is that not only are they not still on, but uh, they're unraveling very quickly with uh, reports every day of, uh, of different French and German and Italian uh, businessmen who are running to Iran to uh, do business with them. So uh, the U.S. might not be uh, joining that uh, gold rush, so to speak, but uh, other countries are. So uh, he was in a very difficult uh, position. Uh, John Kerry also. You know, most people will tell you that uh, he's a seasoned diplomat and uh, he only has Israel's best interests in mind. And, you know, a lot of people who are for this two-state solution 
you know, think that they're promoting it because they're a friend of Israel and that is the best thing for Israel. But uh, I don't think that uh, most of the people who attended the APAC convention uh, believe that the two-state solution is the best thing for Israel. And as a result, uh, you had uh, two men who were in a position of trying to uh, defend uh, very indefensible positions to a crowd uh, that uh, was not sympathetic to begin with. Uh, whereas Bob Menendez, the senator from New Jersey, gets up and uh, he gives the kind of rip-roaring speech that people want to hear that, you know, listen, folks, uh, you know, Israel's not here just because of the Holocaust. Israel is here because of Avram and Sarah, and uh, they have a 4,000-year-old claim to the land, and, and that's why they're there, and they deserve to be there. So, you know, that, uh, that was music to the ears of uh, the delegates, and it was uh, the one point... Uh, in the entire convention where the crowd really spontaneously got to their feet and gave a rousing ovation to uh, one of the speakers. So it's amazing when you think about it that just the very basic, not a policy speech of Bob Menendez's part, but amongst the Democrats, leading Democrats that spoke, there was very little in the way of real red meat to throw to the audience. No major that this administration is doing this, this administration is doing this. It's more on the defensive about what they're about what they're doing. And out of the 14,000 that are there, or some people say 16,000, some people say 12,000. Truth is, it doesn't matter if you if you haven't been to the APAC policy conference, you really haven't experienced what it's like to be with so many committed activists on behalf of Israel. So many people who are politically active out there. And it's uh, it's really it's really quite heartening. But on the other hand, I guess you know, people are also looking for something to sink their teeth into. They're looking for a purpose. They're looking to, you know, for something to do. And on that last day, they were all given lobbying sheets to go to the Hill and to do something. So what was it that they were, char- were charged to do on that Tuesday, Tuesday lobbying day? Was there anything that somebody – and I think some people might have been disappointed in the fact that, you know, APAC didn't get the fight – didn't win the fight for the sanctions. So what was it that the crowd got? Well, APAC uh, did uh, put out a, uh, a little bulletin with talking points uh, for the lobbyists, and uh, a lot of it was uh, talking about uh, Iran. And, uh, you know, here is an area where, uh, you know, I personally disagree with uh, a lot of the people who are very pro-sanctions, and uh, I have written about this from time to time in Mishpacha, but, uh, you know, Iran has been uh, under sanctions for quite some time, and it hasn't stopped them at all from pursuing uh, the nuclear uh, weapon option. And I don't feel that uh, even stiffer options uh, would really make that much of a difference either. Uh, it might cause more economic damage to Iran, but they're not going to stop uh, building a nuclear weapon. Uh, they're, they're not in a position where they're answerable for their people. If the price of bread goes up uh, because of sanctions or if uh, another commodity is less available because of the sanctions, then uh, you know who's going to complain? If you go out in the streets and complain against the Iranian government, uh, that might be the last time you're seen in the streets. So they're not answerable to their people, and they're not going to uh, to stop uh, something that's been a goal of theirs since the 1950s, ever since uh, President Eisenhower uh, helped them uh, initialize uh, the nuclear program. So, uh, you know, contrary to the popular opinion that uh, APAC lost a big battle uh, when they had to back down uh, uh, on uh, not trying to push the Senate or lobby the Senate to uh, uh, Try to override what would have been a, a definite Obama veto. I think APAC made the right decision. You know, they took a look at the numbers in the Senate and they said, "Look, uh, the Democrats have a solid majority. They're not going to buck uh, uh, the president of their own party on this uh, because of our lobbying efforts." And uh, I, I think it's probably just as well because stiffer sanctions, I think, would have just given a lot of people the impression that, okay, we're doing something to stop Iran's nuclear program, uh, where in reality, I don't think it would have stopped anything. So you're of the opinion to stick with what's possible instead of necessarily pushing to the to something that's a little more remote and trying to get there. You know, there, there's no there's no sense taking on a battle that uh, that you can't win, and uh, politics is always a numbers game. Uh, I think you're count. correct in that political analysis. There's no question that that battles that can be won, you know, or or as you know, most battles are won or. Uh, uh, lost before they're fought. So that, that certainly adage goes well in politics. And you've been in it as long as most people, so uh, you know exactly how that works on the inside. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of known for taking on battles that I can't win, but look, everybody has their thing. So Benjamin Rose, uh, news editor of Mishpacha Magazine, I really appreciate you coming on, sharing insight with uh, both sides of the ocean. 
uh, both in Israel and uh, here and getting the Israeli perspective on the APAC policy conference and uh, the states of Israel and foreign policy, Iran, here in the U.S. Benjamin Rose uh, from Mishbaka Magazine, thanks again. My pleasure, Michael. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics here on the Nachum Siegel Network, sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations. And we have, for the first time joining us, Daniel Scarpinato, who is National Press Secretary at the National Republican Congressional Committee, or NRCC for short, because National Congress- Republican Congressional Committee is just too long for most people. Uh, a native Arizona, Daniel started his career as a reporter of the Arizona Daily Star, covering the campaigns of notables, including John McCain, Janet Napolitano, and Gabby Giffords. And now he is in D.C. helping the Republicans uh, control, continue control of the House of Representatives and had a big win this week in a special election in Florida in the Tampa Bay area, but actually not Tampa, Pinellas County. So, Daniel, welcome to Spin Class, and uh, congratulations on a big win. Thank you. Appreciate it, and uh, very happy to be on with you today. So tell us about this race. Tell us about this election. A longtime congressman, 40-year congressman, Bill Young, uh, passed away, and this was considered a bellwether race. And now I don't know about bellwethers out there because I look at all special elections as being really special and unique. But a lot of people are out there thinking that this is going to be a harbinger of the 2014 midterm elections. Yeah, well, after the tragic loss of Congressman Young, um, the the deck uh, the deck looked really stacked against us in in this seat. Uh, President Obama had won the district both in 08 and 2012, and Congressman Young, having been a longtime congressman there, very well known, had been able to win the district, and the Democrats hadn't really put up a challenge. But the district had changed over the years, gone for Obama, and the Democrats were able to recruit. Um, really the best candidate they could in this district, um, Alex Sink, who had won the district when she ran for governor in 2010, which was a bad year for Democrats, but she carried it anyway. And so I think a lot of people assumed she had the leg up. She didn't have a primary, walked in with a million-dollar cash advantage, um, and um, we had a primary on our side, and uh, David Jolly, Republican, came out of that really cash-strapped um, and uh, – uh, Alex Sink uh, went right up on TV um, attacking him. And uh, at the time, if you remember, you know, obviously the national narrative uh, was that, you know, Republicans were, um, you know, having a tough time. Uh, we had lost the Virginia governor's race, although just barely. Um, but we started to see things shift in um, in polling uh, that the more folks knew that Alex Sink, the Democrats, supported the president's health care law. Um, and had supported it early on, um, the more troubled they were by that. There's a lot of seniors in this district, and they were particularly concerned about the impact to Medicare and Medicare Advantage um, as part of that Health Care Act. So uh, we started to see the race really tighten up, um, and uh, we had a big win on Tuesday night. Um, you know, I agree with you that uh, you have to be careful of taking too much out of these, but I do think it shows a lot about uh, where the climate is right now. And I know that the Democrats uh, were pretty unprepared for this loss. They were expecting to win and that they're having conversations as we speak about where do they go from here? How do they change their message? How do they deal with Obamacare, which is going to be a big issue for them? And they had planned, as they did in this race, to have put their candidates there out there talking about fixing the law. And I think the problem they found in this race is that Voters didn't really buy that because they don't trust the folks who created the law they don't like to then be the ones who are supposedly going to fix it and provide accountability. So, Daniel, there was some talk about David Jolly not being the best candidate. And certainly uh, there were some recriminations going on prior to the race. And everybody's happy in victory. So there's no... uh, Everybody wants to own a victory and nobody wants to just like everybody runs away from a defeat. But so but there was certainly some rumblings about David Jolly and his candidacy in the campaign that he ran. So from your perspective, sometimes these special elections are run by the national party, by the NRCC. How much of the campaign was was national? How much was David Jolly? 
we were partners, and I've been through a number of these special elections now, and they are they have to be a partnership. Um, and really, you know, uh, the the finger pointing isn't. It, uh, you know, I know folks want to do that and analyze these campaigns. Um, you know, folks here in D.C. want you know have an opinion on what, what campaigns are doing out on the ground. But having been on the ground and worked on these, you know, when you're talking about a very short time frame of a campaign um, and all the media, the national media attention that goes into you know a race like this, you know, it's very tough to be on the ground running one of these. You have a very short amount of time, and in this one in particular with the primary, you know, they had a very short amount of time to start raising money. Um, so, you know, I've been I've been there and I know that it's it's not easy and, and special elections are very challenging as a candidate in the campaign. Um, and, you know, this one was no exception, but we were really partners with them um, and had staff down there and, um, you know, did our best to to, um, you know, uh, make sure that that we won this race, and like I said, you know, there was there was not always clarity because the polling was so tight and the early ballot returns were so tight um, that I think everyone you know knew that this was going to be a close race. So I know the adage I was looking for a couple seconds ago is success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. So I apologize for butchering that one, but. Uh... <laughs> The, I, I one thing I noticed is that you mentioned the early voting. There was a lot of early voting going on, and it was looked at as going strongly for the Democrat because for Alex Sink because of registration, because of by who returned uh, absentee ballots or early voting ballots and the like. So on election day, I, I guess you can make an assumption that David Jolly did incredibly well uh, on on the actual day of the election. Yeah, he did, and 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 that's something. And you mentioned that I'm from Arizona. We also, it's very similar to Florida, um, that a lot of people vote by early ballot because there's very aggressive programs in the state where people just automatically get mailed a ballot. And so, um, what you've seen the last few years is a big trend towards early voting. What you also see is that Republican voters are more likely to vote later and vote on election day and democrat voters are more likely to vote early um and vote by mail and um so as a result um you know and i think you saw that play out here where it was really election day that helped uh, helped uh, push uh mr jolly over the edge um but he also was competitive in early ballots and as more early ballots came in it started to trend more in his direction. He needed a certain margin among those early ballots and, uh, from Republicans in order to be competitive on election day. And early on, they were more skewed towards Democrats. And as the race went on, you saw more Republican ballots come in. I think that was both because of the organic uh, dynamic I described of when they vote, but also because of the messaging and the more the race became about the Affordable Care Act and about um, the contrast between the candidates on that, I think that you saw numbers move in our own internal poll lane. Um, Alex Sink's favorability ratings um, really started to crumble as people learned more about her support for the law. We're talking with Daniel Scarpinato, the national Dep- the national press secretary at the NRCC. And Daniel, is it fair to say at this point we're kind of far removed from the Republican recriminations after the government shutdown and all these the, the talk around the disintegration of the Republican Party, as well as the, the, just the disarray amongst congressional Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I think that those are really you know those are interesting kind of beltway. Stories for reporters and so forth. Um, I I think though that that voters are less concerned about you know the the drama inside any political party, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, and they're more interested in how certain policies are impacting them. And um, I think the Democrats have really sought to run a theoretical campaign about theoretically what would happen if the Affordable Care Act was repealed, and theoretically what would happen. 
you know, if Republicans did X, Y, and Z, whereas voters are actually dealing with the reality of what is happening with Obamacare currently. People have actually gotten letters losing their insurance. They're seeing premiums go up. They're seeing actual real implications that are impacting them. And I think that's the piece that is really, you know, having an impact on the ground in this election, but also what we're seeing in polling in other competitive districts across the state, uh, the country. And what I will say is that, you know, because we poll constantly in swing districts that are very much like this, or that are even more skewed in the president's direct, in the Democrats' direction, and in places where, uh, you know, the president got 54% in the last election, you now see him underwater. And you see that in a lot of the statewide stuff, like in Iowa, where his approval rating has now slipped to 39%, but he carried that state. So the climate has shifted a lot since the last election. Um, and of course, you take this day by day. And I think if anything is an indication of the last few cycles is the voters um, you know, have shifted uh, in terms of which party they they want um, to to side with. But what's clear is that they want divided government and they want a check and balance. And I think right now, Republican candidates are offering a check and a balance on um, the administration and on the Democrats in the Senate. And I think voters want that. I don't think they want one party running the whole show. Okay, Daniel Scarpinato, the National Press Secretary at the NRCC. Thanks for joining us. Talk about the special election down in the Tampa Bay area uh, that worked out very well for his candidate, David Jolly, defeating the former uh, Florida gubernatorial candidate, Alex Sink. So, Daniel, thanks for uh, coming on, and we hope to have you again as we get closer to the midterm elections. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Okay, so let's get the other side of the equation. As we know in politics, you know, somebody is going to win, somebody isn't going to win. And uh want to speak to a Democrat a friend who lives in the Tampa Bay area. Anna Cruz is a former executive director of the Florida Democratic Party. She served on Hillary Clinton's Hispanic Advisory Committee for a 2008 presidential bid and is now a common political commentator, commentator, excuse me, for Bay News 9. And she was not involved directly in the sync campaign, but she knows, knowing Anna, she knows everything about everything that goes on politically in the Tampa Bay area. Anna, welcome here to Spin Class. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. Um, I do want you to know that it is sunny and beautiful down here in Florida. just want to make you guys a little bit jealous. It's gorgeous, and we wish that you were down here. I hate when you do that because it is uh, balmy 22 degrees, I think, outside here. So, uh, but uh, maybe next week we'll have to work on that. Uh, yeah. Or maybe even this weekend if you say it's that great. But let's talk politics for a second. Uh, Alex Sink, on paper, a great candidate, former gubernatorial candidate, 100% name recognition. She's running for a congressional seat in a special election which is usually a, not a high turnout affair, so the, a well-known. And she's running against somebody, David Jolly, whose profession is Washington lobbyist. So not necessarily at the top of the list of what voters are necessarily looking for. And uh, why didn't she win? What, what happened uh, from the Democratic side? Well, let me start here. This was a special election. We have to remind ourselves that in special elections, anything can happen and anything did here. And we also can't forget that the Republicans, despite having spent $5 million against her, uh, Alex put this, this um, race and this district in play, and they have held on to this seat for such a long time. So, you know, we knew that this race was going to be very close. Um, I, I believe that Alex ran a great campaign. Um, they had all of the resources that they needed, um, and, and despite the fact that the, the national Republicans want to say that this was a referendum on Obamacare, which I, I don't necessarily agree with. I think that if it was, it would have been a much larger margin um, of a victory for, for David Jolly. But I will tell you this, it was about turnout, and they turned out their voters, and, um, and, and that made all the difference. So is there such a thing as a, a David Jolly machine, or it was it, who was it that was turning out? It was all, it was the, all the outside money. What do you attribute the key here? It's or just David Jolly was, you know, it, it's considered a moderate district, and David Jolly ran pretty hard to the right. Well, he ran a parallel campaign, and he, and, and he had to do so because he had a primary, um, and then he had a general, and. Um, 
you know, he he was although um, although a lot of the critics say that he wasn't a, a great candidate, he he was from this area, um, and he talked about having been part of of Bill Young's team and legacy. And, and that went a long way here in this district. You know, Bill Young was a, a cardinal in the Congress and very well respected, and, and David Jolly um, really did capitalize on that with, with his messaging. But I, I again, I, I want to reiterate that um, I think that his, his strategy was, was dead on, and, that, and his allies believed that if they could win the Republican you know, if they, could, if they could make sure that any Republicans didn't defect and that they could go toward the middle, then they would win this thing. And they did, and they eked it out. I will tell you that it will be a much different electorate in November. And um, although it's, it's too soon to, to determine whether Alex Sink will, will run again. Um, I was just going to ask if we're going to see a rematch. Him, yeah. If she does challenge him, it'll be, it'll be completely different. Um, turnout for us is, is higher during the presidential cycles. And Charlie, with Charlie Chris being on the ballot as um, a Democrat from Pinellas, that will certainly help turn out there as well. Very interesting. So you mentioned that. I wanted to ask about the gubernatorial race. Uh, Charlie Chris, one-time uh, Republican, a Republican kingmaker in the, uh, out there uh, from a presidential perspective, uh, certainly helped John McCain become uh, win, win the Florida primary. Uh, and he is now running as a Democrat. Uh, kind of upends everything uh, against Governor Scott. So where do things stand on that in that race? Um, you know what? Right now, Charlie Crist is um, keeping his head down. He is raising money, and they're getting focused. It's a really big state, Michael, and it takes a lot to to coordinate and a lot of resources to to, to get up on TV and stay up on TV. I yeah, a lot of different TV markets in uh, in Florida. Lots of TV markets, um, with Tampa being the number one um, uh, media market in the state, and it's very expensive to go up on air, on air here and stay on air here. I can tell you that this morning I just saw um, uh, incumbent Governor Rick Scott begin to air his ads on, on who he was as a kid and how he grew up, um, and they're very, very powerful, uh, and there's going to be a lot of money that is going to, to come into this state, as it did for this congressional seat. There's $13 million spent in this congressional race as of Tuesday. And a lot of it was special interest money. A lot of it was, was hard money that these candidates raised. Um, but I, I, I think that a lot of the attention was poured here because, number one, if the Democrats picked off this seat, it brought them closer and closer to the 17 that they need to pick up um, to take control of the majority. And the Democrat, I mean, the Republicans had to prove that they, they could hold on to this seat so it wasn't a referendum on them in November. But again, at the end of the day, it's, this race was just still so close, and it was a special election that um, I think that, that as people begin to enroll and begin to use um, Obamacare, uh, that, that their opinions of that will begin to change. So I, I like the way you've spun this, kind of thrown it back on its head that really this was the Republicans who had everything to had everything to lose here and the Democrats were just taking a shot at it. But let's just discuss for a second as a strategist yourself, how do how do the Democrats get out from under the Obamacare albatross? And I, I'm just throwing it out there, not as a to, to spin it, but it seems to be electorally that it's problematic for a lot of Democrats to run with Obamacare being uh, weighing them down. Listen, the conservatives want everyone to believe that this is a big albatross, um, because quite frankly, there there is a real lack of messaging from the RNC and the Republican, both congressional and senatorial campaign committees. You know, there's a lack of a message. There's a lack of diversity. They are are known as the the no party on social issues, no choice, no equality. Um, no real immigration reform, um, you know, end Obamacare, don't fix it. And if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. And I think that that is one of their biggest challenges moving into not just this election, but into their future is, you know, who are they as a party? Um, are they going to be hijacked by the Tea Party? Are they going to continue to be the party of no, no diversity? And that's a, that's, that is a real albatross right there because our country is increasingly more, um, 
more acceptable of, of people's views and more diverse. And, and that's going to be a real challenge for them. We're talking to Anna Cruz, who is the former executive director of the Florida Democratic Party. And we are talking, reviewing, I guess, the outcome from this week's uh, special election in Pinellas County in the Tampa Bay area that replaced a longtime Congressman Bill Young and replaced him actually with David Jolly, a former staffer of Bill Young, also a Republican, seen by some or some would like to see it as a bellwether race for the congressional midterms. And we also touch it on the gubernatorial race, which can be hotly contested in Florida. But if we can look a little bit further, Anna, uh, right now there might be a couple Floridians looking at the two, at 2016 right now. So maybe you can give us an idea, you know, as not to look too far ahead, but a little bit ahead. Uh, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, where do you, where do you see them? Or maybe there's a, somebody on the Democratic side looking for the White House in 2016. Well, I will tell you that um, it's interesting that you bring up Jeb Bush. Um, and, and he could have really played uh, a factor in this local uh, congressional race here. He is remains and will continue to remain a, a very wildly popular um, governor. He knew where he stood on the issues, and, and he, he led whether you liked him or not. Um, I It was apparent, not apparent, but um, it was it, Jeb Bush actually did a mail piece and a TV ad here in the waning last week and a half of the David Jolly race. And the Republicans saw a surge in return of absentee ballots and uh, early voting when they used Jeb Bush to campaign for David Jolly. And that goes to show you how how still incredibly popular that he is. Um, I I personally think that he is very much considering um, a, a bid for the for the, the presidency. Um, but you know what, it, it's still a, a bit early. I think that there's been a lot of attention um, centered around Chris Christie and clearly Hillary Clinton. Um, so it remains to be seen what, what Floridians emerge from here. If he runs, Marco Rubio won't run. Okay, great. Anna Cruz of the formerly the executive director of the Florida Democratic Party, now at Floridian Partners. Thanks for joining us here. On spin class, and as we go along, and Florida becomes more and more interesting and more and more the center of the political universe, we hope to have you again. Thank you, Michael, and have a nice holiday. All right, and enjoy the weather. Thank you. Okay, this is spin class. We're sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, BeckermanPR.com, and uh, we're going to have we have him back. Happy to have back a frequent guest here on the show, Jacob Cornblue, journalist, pundit, commentator, blogger extraordinaire. And uh, covering for us uh, some of the early missteps of the de Blasio administration. I know there was one. I don't like to focus on that every week because I feel like somehow, you know, piling on. I don't like to do that. Give the guy a chance. Give him a honeymoon. But this week, Jacob has uncovered a story for us that I think really needs to be talked about. And that is the UPK push, universal pre-K de Blasio and his people pushing for that released a letter with all kinds of rabbis and different Jewish leaders on it. And some of those names were not asked beforehand whether they wanted to be on that list. So, Jacob, welcome back to Spin Class. Uh, It's a pleasure to join you, Michael. So, Jacob, tell us what happened. Tell us about this uh, sloppy episode. You want to call it sloppy? You want to call it underhanded? You want to call it... Uh, just politics as usual. What what are we calling this, and what happened? Give us uh, give us the rundown. Oh, I don't know how to call it because uh, it undermines what happened here. Uh, basically, uh, the De Blasio administration had launched a campaign, a UPK NYC campaign, which has nothing to do with the administration. However, the people that are behind this campaign. Uh, were handling his mayoral campaign, so they they know uh, you know they know the issues, they know the people, and they know who who is behind every constituent, every group uh, in the city. So they released a letter of 250 clergies from from Muslim, Christian, and Jewish. And it happened to be that 12 of the 18 Jewish leaders were Orthodox rabbis. So 
you know, if they're Orthodox and they're in Brooklyn, probably I would bump into them. So I made some phone calls. I I I, I met some at meetings and I asked them, uh, how come you endorsed a letter which says basically that endorses raising taxes on the wealthiest New Yorkers to fund universal pre-K when the governor is against it. Uh, we know that the state senate just uh, today uh, released their budget giving basically the funding of $540 million, uh, for universal pre-K without raising taxes. So why put yourself in a in a bubble, man? Why put yourself between Governor Cuomo and the Blasio when it comes to tax hikes? So some of them were not willing to go even even to comment on that. Some were uh, uh, expressed their dismay that uh, the signatures were used unauthorized, but were not willing to go on record. Of course, um, some of them have ties with the Blasio and they're not interested to burn the bush over one signature or another. So which of these, who, who were the big names out there that that either signed or didn't sign and signed and didn't, uh, and, you know, said afterward that they were not, uh, not consulted? And I understand from the story that there was a, a single person who rounded up the signatures. So could it be that one person rounded up the signatures on behalf of de Blasio's camp, uh, campaign? I don't know that's what to call what, it. I guess their their auxiliary what, campaign, and uh, the other people were not at fault. That's what um, the UPK NYC uh, spokesperson Dan Lavitan, uh, he was um, de Blasio's spokesperson during the campaign. He argues that Abraham Khan from Coach of Flatbush was the one circulating the signatures. However, I could not reach Mr. Khan, but I spoke to a person that spoke to him who said that that was not the case. So we cannot go into into that aspect. But however, uh, the Jewish Week spoke to Shia Rubenstein from the Marine Park um, um, JCC. Uh, he said that he didn't know about it. Um, Yeshiva Flatbush High School, uh, Rev. Naftali Besser, also did not know about it. Um, I spoke to four of them where I can't give out the names, but all I can say that all of them are from Brooklyn, and they also said, while we um, admire very much uh, Mayor de Blasio's push for universal pre-K, that does not mean that we um, endorse his tax-like proposal. So it's basically, I wouldn't call it miscommunication, because... All of these twelve rabbis would have been re- uh, are, are reachable. You know, uh, some of them have worked with the Blasio in the past, and you could have picked up a phone call and say, "Hey, buddy, you know, I'm going through this period of uh, a rift between me and the governor. Please help me out. You know, I'm not asking too much. I'm just asking for a signature." But obviously, he didn't do that. Now, what about the idea of, I, I think there were some, one or at least one or two of the people there who, on this list, who not only were not, didn't sign, but they're not even practicing rabbis. And, you know, just, they're just, uh, if you're putting a clergy letter together, uh, you're, you're actually just getting people who, they might happen to be rabbis in the sense they have ordination, but they're not practicing rabbis. They're just, uh, People who operate various social service organizations, and why wouldn't a social service organization want more money? Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, Michael, you well know that there are a lot of people here in the United States, and especially in Brooklyn, who call themselves themselves rabbis, and they are not necessarily uh, rabbis. Not 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 to talk about their affiliation with some with some groups in the city. So. Of course, everybody could be a rabbi. If I go in the street and I call myself Rabbi Jacob, I'm sure that I'll be able to sign on any letter uh, uh, when reached out to. So, um, you know, this, this, this is something in general. But, um, uh, of course, when a mayor of New York City reaches out to you and asks you, do me a favor, and you are a social service uh, organization that, uh, relies on funds from the city or from the state, 
obviously you would sign it. But that was not the case here because the mayor didn't reach out to them. Well, so I guess the question here is there's just a middleman. But it all goes back to one of these perceptions out there that the Blasio administration is not ready for prime time. They keep doing these fumbles, these little things that make people like you and me, but more you probably because you're covering them every day, a little bit frustrated and a little bit annoyed by their reactions and their relationships with the with the press and the the fourth estate. Would you say what, what do we attribute this to? Um, you know, the, there's some been some talk about he doesn't have he misses Liz Smith, who was his press secretary, who he didn't hire for uh, some different reasons, personal reasons, and he just doesn't have the A team in house. We have, we can look at it in two ways. You can look at it as somebody that is overwhelmed, that basically was not uh, the favorite to win early on in uh, the race, and then it just came back to him. He won. He won over Loder because there was a low turnout, and he had uh, the advantage of being the front runner in the Democratic primary. And, you know, he has to get down to the northern grid. He had a snow. He has now another crisis in East Harlem. He had um, this fight with Cuomo every day, another fight over some other issue. And he hardly appointed any heads to to new uh, uh, city agencies. So you can call it being overwhelmed, not being you know down to 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 the issues that we talk about. But on the other hand, you can also attribute it to not being ready for prime time. This is a guy that never held a job. I mean, for three decades, I think uh, he first joined the. Dinkins administration as a staffer. He then went on to local politics. He went on to being uh, appointed manager uh, um, at the Hillary Clinton campaign and then as councilman, public advocate, and became mayor out of the blue. So, of course, somebody that never held a job for three decades, you come into the executive office and you, you, you start looking at the budget, you start looking at everything, and it's not like the campaign style goes. You go out in the street and people, people don't ask you questions. They seek solutions. The press out there uh, is seeking to communicate between him and the public since he rarely goes out uh, to the public on, on, on uh, um, you know, discussing broad issues, if it's town hall meetings, if it's uh, doing extensive press conferences on, on issues that matter. To all New Yorkers, he goes to Albany, he pushes for his progressive agenda, and obviously he has the city council backing him. So, you know, the press is the one that com- communicates between him. And when we see a guy that is not yet ready for the job, and, you know, he fumbles on, on, on you know, on almost nothing, you don't give us material, we find whatever we see, uh, coming up on your face, and if you fumble, if you stumble, and if you, uh, uh, you know, you do stupid things, of course we'll be the first one to report it. Okay, Jacob Cornblue, the blogger, JP Updates, Yeshiva World News, all over the place. Jacob, thank you for your keen insight, and once again, giving us the inside of inside baseball here in New York City, and I uh, hope to have you again soon. Happy Purim, Michael. You too, Jacob. Happy Purim. Happy Purim to everybody. This is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman. As we close up, a little want to follow up on last week's, you know, political knucklehead move of the week. And you know, always, always those guys that you like uh, that you're kind of feeling a little bit uh, bad about criticizing them. But one thing stuck out this week, and probably little known, but the big case, huge case against Chevron. Chevron, big oil giant, not necessarily sympathetic figure. But apparently there was pollution of the Ecuadorian rainforest back in the 70s and 80s, and they've been in court for about a decade in Ecuador. And early on, there was a $19 billion judgment against Chevron, which they fought. They decided to appeal. But Tom DiNapoli, our state controller, had pressured Chevron over and over and over to settle the case for billions and billions of dollars. And it turns out this just this past week, that the judge threw out the case. Not only that, he said that the entire case brought against Chevron was based on fraud in many cases. 
And uh, I will say, uh, you know, Tom DiNapoli should look at this as a win because as a shareholder of Chevron, you want to do what's best for your shareholders, meaning though you are a custodian of people's pension money and you want to make sure that those people get the greatest benefits. So settling a case that's going to cost you billions of dollars doesn't help your constituents unless your decisions are entirely political and based not on your fiduciary responsibilities, but on your political opportunities. And I have to say, Tom DiNapoli, that in my mind, basing your trying to push forward that fraud against a major, though unsympathetic, American corporation earns you the knucklehead award of the week. And this is Spin Class, and we are out of time for another Thursday evening in the books. Happy Perm to everybody. Hope you had an easy fast, and we'll speak to you next week.